0: Well what are we doing here on a Tuesday night? Didn't we just do this a couple of days ago and here we are again. So thank you so much uh, for coming out tonight and uh, if you're here I I hope that's because you love worshiping Jesus and you love getting into his word. Is that why you're here tonight? I hope I would hope so. Um And uh, so I would assume you would then get excited about uh, sermons that are upcoming here at our church. So I get excited about this stuff. I just want to make sure everybody knows what's coming up. First of all, we just started the book of Hosea on Sunday. And so we're going to get more of that coming up this Sunday. So this next Sunday, we've got Hosea. Now the Sunday after that, we have a special guest that we're flying in and it's Pastor Pete Lazushikoff, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. He's going to be here in two Sundays preaching the word. Um, And then in three, not the third Sunday from now, for the very first time ever preaching at our church on a Sunday morning, we have Pastor Mike Fabares who will be here preaching to us. So we're, I mean, these are guys who uh, are on the board of this church. They are the guys who had the vision to plant this church. And so it's going to be exciting to have them here. And so uh, then that means on So that's the Sundays. That's the next three Sundays. Now, three weeks from tonight, okay, we are going to be back here for a special week at our church called Great Awakening Week that we are going to have, all right? So if you like church on a Tuesday night... Set your calendar right now for three weeks you want to come back and we're not just going to do it on Tuesday uh, we're going to do it on Wednesday and we're going to do it on Thursday and we're going to have summertime barbecue dinner every one of those three nights here at the church. We would really love to see this whole place packed out and we're going to go through in those three nights the book of Nahum in the Old Testament. Um, which is a letter to the nation Assyria, and I think it'll be crazy how much it's needed in the nation America, and so we're going to get into that um, coming up. That's three weeks, so we got the 4th of July the day before that, so uh, what fireworks we're going to have on that week with Pastor Mike Favaras, the 4th of July. Do you guys know we have a float in the 4th of July parade here in Huntington Beach? We're going to win it. We're going to win And then we've got three nights of church after that, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday night. So a lot of exciting things coming up that you could be praying about, that you could be looking forward to. But we're here tonight for two reasons, basically. One is, um, ever since we started doing Psalm of the Day, we've been talking about wouldn't it be great to do a whole event inspired by our readings of the Psalms. Ryan and I have been talking about this. In fact, Ryan wrote a song for this service tonight that we're going to get to after the service. So this is kind of something we've been dreaming about since we started doing Psalm of the Day. And this is my favorite Psalm. So basically this is very, very selfish why we're here tonight because, because this is what I, I love this Psalm. And uh, also another reason I was really compelled to do this is when I was studying Hosea. If you were here on Sunday and God said that Hosea should marry someone who was going to cheat on him, who was going to be an adulteress. And that that was going to be a picture of how the nation of Israel had worshipped other gods, had gone away into sin instead of obeying God and loving him with all of their heart. Now that's like the big picture, okay? Here's God. He says that we should love him with all our heart. Here's his people going and loving something else. They're going to be judged. They're going to be uh, become not his people. Basically Assyria is going to come in and and wipe them out. Now you might think well I'm not a worshiper of Baal. I'm not an idolater. I do think I love God. I'm not going out there and living for something else besides God. But if we're honest here tonight, sometimes we're tempted to think that maybe loving something else besides God, seeking my goodness somewhere else besides God, maybe I might find satisfaction in something besides God. So I'll see what the world has to offer. See that honesty, about sometimes our hearts look at the things of the world. We see them and we desire them and we don't love God in our hearts. Maybe it's not in our life. Maybe we're still coming to church. We're still singing worship songs. We're still loving God. But then in our heart, sometimes we look somewhere else. So I feel like this is a very honest psalm that perhaps takes the message that we learned in Hosea and makes it very personal to, hey, you're here at church. You're here at church on a Tuesday. You're saying you want to worship and love God, but in your heart, what's really happening. And so if you're looking at Psalm 73, if you still got it open there, uh, just a few things of context before we dive into it. One is it says book three. Does everybody see that right above Psalm 73? So we're now in the third book. The Psalms are actually divided into five different books. And book three comes just about halfway through the Psalms. And Psalm 73 is the first Psalm to kick off this third book. Now why did they divide Psalms into five different books? That's a great question. I have absolutely no idea. In fact, I don't think anybody really does know the answer. It's clear that they did it. We're not exactly sure why. But what's interesting in book three is there's a bunch of Psalms by this guy named Asaph, who is the writer of our Psalms. When we think of the Psalms, we usually think of them being written by David. But now, Asaph, we've already read a couple of his Psalms. Like Psalm 50 is a Psalm of Asaph. And as you read through book 3, you're going to get a few more Psalms by this guy. So before we dive into this particular Psalm, turn to First Chronicles with me. First Chronicles chapter 15 and 16, page 346. If you got one of our Bibles. Because before, this guy, he writes Psalm 73, which is a very personal experience that he has. Uh, an experience that hopefully we can all relate to, to here tonight. So before we dive just into his words, let's see who this guy was. He was, a, he was a real guy and he was alive at the time of David. And they're doing something here in First in Chronicles 15 and 16. They're moving the ark. They're moving the Ark of the Covenant, which represented to them the very presence of God, which had the two tablets of stone inside of it. If you've ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you might have a picture of what this thing looks like. Well, it was a real thing, and they were moving it. The thing that represented to them, represented the holy presence of God, they were moving it. And they were moving it into this tent that they had prepared, that King David had prepared. And when they're moving it, actually turn back to chapter 13, 1 Chronicles 13. And look what happens here. Um, Look at verse 9. So they're moving it. They have it on a cart and they're moving the ark. Seems like a good thing. They, they want to move it to a place of worship. And then it says, when they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah, one of the guys that's driving the ark in this cart that they have, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark for the oxen stumbled. So they're pulling this ark along and the oxen trip. And it looks like the ark is going to fall off the cart that they have it on. And so Uzzah puts out his hand to steady it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark. And he died there before God. So this ark, moving the ark. Uh, taking care of the ark, something that represents the holy presence of God. Here's a guy seemingly meaning well, not wanting the ark to fall over. So he puts out his hand to steady the ark and God kills him because he's not respecting the holiness of God that's represented there with the ark. So you think right away, wow, handling this ark is of the utmost care, and takes the most concentration and attention. Who is the kind of person that you would put in charge of the ark? We'll go to chapter 16, and that's where we meet our guy. When the ark gets placed in the tent that, that David wanted it to, uh, to be in here, um, it says in verse 4, then he appointed, this is First Chronicles 16 verse 4, then he appointed some of the Levites, the priests, as ministers before the ark of the Lord, to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. So there were some guys that were going to be full-time, 24-7, ministering there at this ark. Asaph, verse 5, Asaph, our guy, the writer of our psalm, Asaph was the chief. And then it starts to list all of these other guys um, that were going to be there as well. And verse 7 says, Then on that day David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. So if David's a man after God's own heart, if he's the the king of Israel, well who's the guy that he looks to as the leader of the priests? That the guy who's going to be watching over the ark of the Lord and making sure that it's in good hands? Well Asaph is that guy. So what a compliment to have David put you in charge of the ark of the Lord. And then verse 37, so David left Asaph, after David gives this song of thanks that Asaph, David's psalm, but it seems like Asaph's going to be the guy singing songs regularly of thanksgiving. Verse 37, so David left Asaph and his brothers there before the ark of the covenant of the Lord to minister regularly before the ark as each day required. So just It doesn't tell you much about Asaph. We're going to find out a lot more about who he was and what he was about by the psalm that he writes here in Psalm 73. But just to give a context to this guy, if there was church on a Tuesday night, Asaph would have been there. He would have been one of the people that would have been very familiar with God, with God's holiness, with the fact that we need to turn from our sins, and the fact that we need to worship God in a very serious and reverent way. So Asaph would have been the kind of guy we would call like a a church kid if they were growing up in the church. A church person. He would have been uh, a man who fears the Lord. Now it's very important that I think we have that background on Asaph as we turn to Psalm 73. Because when you get a look into Asaph's heart, turn back to our text in Psalm 73. Because he's going to be super honest with us. He's going to be more vulnerable and he's going to be more open than most people are at places of worship. At a place like church, at a place like our church right here. I mean on the outside you would think, well here's the guy singing the worship songs. Here's the guy That's in charge of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Here's the guy that David says can do full-time ministry around the Ark. This guy, he's got to be a holy guy, a highly respected guy. But what you're going to see is that Asaph was someone just like me and just like you. And that's why, I mean, when it says a psalm of Asaph, I feel like it could say a psalm of Bobby Blakey. I feel like, I don't know maybe how you feel about this psalm, but I feel like every single verse in this psalm, I could write down. Now, I don't know if I would have put it as well as Asaph did. But, but I hope you don't think that because somebody is a pastor, because somebody is the minister to the ark of the covenant of the Lord, that that person doesn't have real struggles and temptations in their heart. We all do. And Asaph is going to give us a great glimpse of that here in Psalm 73. He starts it out with some head knowledge here. He says, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And that sounds like a nice verse. You could put, you know what? You could cross stitch that and put it up in your house. You know what I'm saying? That's a good summer project for some of you guys maybe. I mean, that's a nice thought right there. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And we all said amen and we all drank some coffee and we all went home. Good night at church. The Lord is good. Anybody want to say amen? Oh yeah, say it again, right? But, verse 2, there's a couple of key transitions, key conjunctions in this psalm. But, yeah, I know God's good, but let's get real, but let's be honest. But as for me, am I one of those who are pure in heart? Well, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. Hey, you're not supposed to be for the arrogant, the proud that God is not going to have anything to do with. Here's the guy who ministers to the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And he wants to let you know, I sometimes envy arrogant people. In fact, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Hey, you're not supposed to be at church saying, doesn't it look like the wicked people sometimes have it better off than we do? That's what Asaph's writing in Psalm 73. Okay. So what we see is that just knowing in your head that God is good is not enough. Let's get this down for point number one. And we're going to give you six points. So fasten your seatbelts. Point number one, head knowledge of God is not enough. Just knowing good things about God. Knowing the truth about God in your head, intellectually. Uh, This is one of the main themes, I hope, of my life and I hope of our entire church. Because I very easily could have been one of those people who wanted to know a lot about the Bible. That was the culture that I grew up in, being a pastor's kid. Being somebody who was blessed to be educated in the scriptures from a very young age there was a temptation in my heart to want to know more information and to want to share the fact that I knew a lot of information with other people so that they would know that I would know. I, I wanted to be one of those people at a time in my life. I could feel that pull that I wanted to be able to impress people not necessarily with what the fact that I knew God but the fact that I knew a lot about God. In fact I knew things that they didn't know. And I wanted to show that to other people. And that kind of knowledge, just knowing things about God, that is, that is dangerous. In fact, it, that's the thing I think there's going to be a lot of people who have a, a great understanding of the scriptures. And uh, a well-informed theology who will burn in hell for all of eternity. Alright. Um, there are many people who could pass a good Bible pop quiz uh, in hell. All right, so uh, there's something dangerous because when you know the information, you might come to think that you're close to God because you have the information, but you don't have the transformation, all right? And so if you could just write down James 1 one of the themes around here is we don't want to just be hearers who deceive themselves because I know a lot about the content of the Bible. No, we want to be doers who, who apply the scripture to our lives. And so we could all start out tonight and we could say, yeah, I know God is good. In fact, if I told you come and hear a fascinating sermon on the good, of God you'd be like well i already know god's good i mean I, i'm not necessarily why would i go to hear that sermon if i'm not going to learn new information well that's not necessarily what it's about is attaining more head knowledge and i like how asaph starts it like that hey we all know the truth at least i did as a levite as a priest as the guy ministering to the ark of the covenant i knew the truth but That wasn't the reality of what was going on in my heart. In fact, uh, I have some commentaries on the Psalms that I like to carry around with me. I don't know if, does anybody else have a commentary that you're using every day for Psalm of the Day? You don't need to raise your your hand. But um, these these are ones we've got. We've got the uh, Kidner one that you can get in the bookstore. We've got the Charles Spurgeon one that you can get in the bookstore. And if you only bought the first of the Kidner ones, you had a hard time when you read Psalm 73 today because now we start version book two. And so if you only bought one book, you're going to have to go to the bookstore now and get the second one because Psalm 73 is where he starts book two. And there's a quote here I just felt like I needed to read as we begin this psalm. It says, the state of the heart determines whether a man lives in the truth in which God's goodness is experienced. Okay, so we're not asking if you know God is good tonight. We're asking if you experience the goodness of God in your life. And we're not asking what you know with your head, but what you know with your heart. That's ultimately what we want to get down to. It says in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 26, that there are people who have come to a knowledge of the truth, but yet they continue in sin. And it says all those people have to look forward to is a fearful expectation of what? Judgment. They know it. Oh, God's good but I'm going to go seek my goodness out tonight in this bottle or in this other person or in this pill or in this television show or movie or thing that I think is going to, yeah, God's good, but I'm now about to go check out what goodness there is over here. That's what this psalm is about. And it says, head knowledge is not going to save you from real world temptation. In fact, look at how he describes the wicked and the arrogant that he's tempted to be envious of, to want the things of the world. Can you imagine if the guy who is ministering to the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord day and night said, hey, I'd like to share with you guys what's really going on in my heart. And truthfully in my heart, I spend time wanting the things of the world. That's what Asaph just said. And here's why I'm envious. Here's why I wish I could be like people who don't know God and are out there doing whatever they want. Well, they have no pains until death. It seems like they have no trouble. It seems like even, even when they die, it seems like they just die and everything's okay with that. It, it, and then it says, this is one of my favorite descriptions here. It says their bodies are fat and sleek. I mean, what kind of diet is that right there, right? I mean, it's like they're, they're full basically. They're, they're fat, but this is some kind of attractive fatness is basically what it's saying. (laughs) Like if you look up the word sleek in the English language, it means well-groomed is what it means, right? Well-groomed fatness. That's what the wicked have. It's like they're full And it's like they're overdoing it. They're not not cutting back. They're not dieting. They're not eating in moderation. They're taking whatever they want and they still look good. Like that's not supposed to work. You can't go to all you can eat buffets every day and yet still look like you're in shape. Come on. You ever meet somebody with a metabolism like that and you're like that's not fair. That's exactly what he's saying right here. It's like well you're fat and you look good wow, how do you do that? They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. In fact, they're, they're blatant about it. And, and in fact, they're wearing pride like a necklace, like it's, like it's good for them to brag about themselves. Like they're not even doing the humble brag that we sometimes do here at church. They're just straight up bragging and they're just wearing it. Like I'm the best. I'm the greatest. Look at me. The violence covers them as a garment. They're not trying to hide the fact that they'll put down other people, that they'll bully other people, that they'll enforce their will upon other people. They're wearing that on their sleeves. Then it talks again about a, a kind of obesity here. It says their eyes swell out through fatness. It's like the fat's coming out of their eyes. I mean, that's gross. That doesn't sound sleek. Uh, Their hearts overflow with follies. There's so much sin, it's just overflowing out into their life. They're not trying to contain it. They're not trying to put a lid on it. They're just letting it out. In fact, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. I love this verse right here, how it talks about their their bragging and their talking. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. That's a good interpretation. Just like their tongue is just strutting, saying whatever they want and they don't care. In fact, it's not even just talking about themselves. It's anti-God talk. And in verse 10 and 11, it says, therefore, as people turn back to them, they find no fault in them. And they say, it's like they're doing these open acts of sin. It's like they're proud about their sin. And yet at the same time, they're like, well, what's God going to do about it? Does God even know what I'm doing? Is there even a God? If there's a God, why doesn't he do something about it? I don't think there's a God. I'll just do whatever I want. These are people that are out there in the world, behold, it says, verse 12, these are the wicked. Always at ease. Doesn't seem like they're stressed. Doesn't seem like they've got the problems that I do. And yet they increase in riches. It's like they're always spending money and yet they've got more money coming in than they're spending. How does that work? That, that's the problem. Okay, here's here's the guy who's in charge of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Here's the pastor of your church. And what I'm saying is sometimes I look at the world and I like the things that I see. Okay, and if you don't think that you ever feel like that or you ever have temptations, you might be lying to yourself about this. We're going to be uh, honest here tonight. Then we need to put down for point number two. Everyone has temptations. Everyone has things of the flesh, things that they see with their eyes. Part of the boastful pride of life. There are things in this world, physical things, that appeal to our old sinful nature, and we need to just be honest about that. There's no. There's no. Uh, there's no benefit in all of us coming to church and acting like our, our hearts are not tempted to want sin. When people act like they've got it all together and they don't share what's honestly going on in their heart, that's not called Christianity. That's called hypocrisy is what it's called. Okay. So we need to be honest that hearts And hopefully we're doing a good job of keeping it in our heart. Yeah, we might see the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And we're not loving those things. We're not living in those things. We're not going after those things. Um, No, we're choosing to love God rather than the things of this world. But I think we would not be honest here at this church if we did not admit openly tonight that the things of this world are tempting to us. And the direction of my life might be to live for God. But some days, I waste hours of my life thinking about things of this world. That's what's happening here. And Asaph, a writer of Psalms of Holy Scripture, the minister of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, is not afraid. He's not ashamed. It's okay for him to admit, hey guys, sometimes I wonder if we're missing out on what the world's got going on. And I can tell you, as a kid who grew up in a Christian family, in fact, we like to joke around at the Blakey house that we lived inside of a box, basically. Because everything that other kids at my school were doing, I was not allowed to do, right? I mean, there were songs that they were listening to. Was I allowed to listen to those songs? No, I was not. There were movies that they were watching. Everybody's talking. We spend all of lunch one day at school. Everybody's talking about this movie that everybody else has seen. Have I seen the movie? No. anybody else have parents like this? God bless them. You know what I'm talking about? You used to not like them and now you just thank God for them every day. You know what I'm saying? Right? I mean, there were just everything that the world was talking about. I felt like I didn't really know about because of how I was being brought up and how my parents were guarding me from these things. And as I heard people talk about things and as they expressed what was going on in the world, I was interested in what they were saying. I wanted to know about the things that they knew about. I wasn't there like, oh, I have no interest in these worldly things. Yeah, my parents would uh, frown on this conversation, and so do I. (laughs) I was like, really, what happened in that movie? Yeah, why was it rated PG-13? What's that about? Hmm. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was very interested. I was intrigued. I was curious, what does this world have to offer? And I think if we're honest, some days it feels like when I'm denying myself and the whole world's out there expressing themselves, that maybe they're having a better day today than I am. And it's okay to say that here at this church, if you think that way. If there's one thing that we've got to be here at this church, it's honest. It's honest about what's going on in our heart. It is always okay to share what is going on in your heart with brothers or sisters here at this church. You need to do that. We all need to do that. If it stays in your heart and you don't talk about it with other people, it's probably going to become a big problem in your life. Uh, And here, Asaph is just letting it all out. Hey, look at the wicked, guys. It looks like they're all getting away with it. And it looks like they're all having a good time. There they are, guys. Anybody else want to be one of those guys some days? Because I sure do. That's what Asaph says. That's what I'm saying. And I would imagine maybe you can say some of it too. And that's why write down 1 Corinthians 10.13. We don't make 911 calls here at the church. Those are for physical emergencies. But for spiritual emergencies, we encourage everybody to make 10.13s. And that's 1 Corinthians 10.13 where it says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will provide a way of what? Escape. Okay? There is always a way out of temptation. And anything that tempts you, tempts somebody else probably even here in this room tonight. So if you feel like you, well, I don't know, I don't think Pastor Bobby would ever feel that way, or I don't think somebody at our church would have, my small group leader would never feel that way, my friend, they would never feel that way. Well, why don't you share what tempts you, and you might find that everybody can at least relate to being tempted to want something that they know they shouldn't want, but at the same time, might look good to them. We can all relate to that. Now, maybe we've got different specific temptations. Well, somebody here can relate to your specific temptations, but we can all agree that we are tempted to sin. In fact, Jesus Christ was tempted to sin by Satan himself. Temptation is not sin. It is when you want to sin. That's what temptation is. So sharing the fact that we are tempted with one another is a good thing for us to do. I think we should follow the example, and I think we should follow the example that Asaph has, and you'll see in a minute when he talks about sharing it with each other, but the first person that Asaph gets honest with is himself. Hey, let me just get real about what I was really thinking. I was thinking those people looked fat, and they still looked good, at the same time. That's what he was thinking. And then when by contrast, here's what Asaph is doing. All in vain have I kept my heart clean. Verse 13, and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be around the ark of the covenant of the Lord on a like daily basis? I mean, maybe Asaph was even around when Uzzah put out his hand to touch the ark and died. Maybe he even saw that happen. Can you imagine the uh, like fear, the holy respect you would have for that ark as you're ministering, as you're the one singing there and making sure everything that everybody's doing is, yeah, I would imagine you were trying to keep your hands clean. I would imagine you were trying to keep your heart pure. I would imagine showing up at work every day with a right heart before God was a real priority for Asaph. When uh, if he's not ready to be in the presence of the Lord, he might end up dead at work that day. I would imagine he took it pretty seriously. And so he feels like, I'm always trying to have short accounts with the Lord about my sin. I'm always trying to confess my sin. I'm always trying to be on the right track, to make sure I'm doing what God would want me to do, to obey his commands, to get in his word, to encourage other people at church. Like there's always something more to do for the Lord, and it just feels like it's vain, he says. Like these people are out here doing whatever they want. Doesn't seem like it's hard for them. Seems like it's easy for them. Seems like it's working out for them. They're getting richer from it. Like they're just doing, they're going with the flow and just it feels all the way every day. And then I'm over here denying my feelings. I'm over here going against the culture. I'm over here trying to do what is right. And it's just hard for me. And where is it even getting me? Because as I deal with my sin, what do I realize? There's more sin to deal with in my life. And it's just, it's hard. I mean, he's, he's just being honest. He's saying, they're doing whatever they want. And I'm over here. And I'm trying to keep my heart clean. Trying to keep my hands innocent. And it feels like all day long I'm being stricken. And I'm being rebuked every morning. And it just, why am I working at a life that is so hard when they're just, doing a life that's so easy what is the point of what I'm doing Asaph says and he's in kind of a dark place can you can you tell he's wanting the things of the world he's thinking that his things that he's doing to live for God aren't getting him anywhere I mean that's not a statement that we that we would say here at church it's vain to keep your heart clean But that's how it's feeling to Asaph. And then he says, verse 15, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. See, he gets to a place in his own thinking as he looks at the world. And as he looks at how hard it is to do what is right day in and day out, he gets to a place in his thinking where he's ready to say things like, look at the world, they've got it better than us. Why is it, where are we even getting out of all of our efforts to try to live righteously before the Lord? Where does it even get us? He's ready to say things like that, and then he realizes, no, he couldn't say things like that in church. See, he couldn't show up at the place where the ark of the covenant of the Lord is and start saying, hey guys, I think we should go dwell in the tents of wickedness rather than this tent that we've made for the Lord. He couldn't go up to his fellow Levites and say, hey guys, don't you guys think it's going to be better if we just lived out in the world and did whatever we wanted than tried so hard to repent of our sins and follow Christ? See, no, he couldn't say it to God's people. No, if I had spoken thus, if I had tried to bring sometimes the temptations that I think about in my head, if I thought about saying that in my fellowship group, no, see, it wouldn't fly there. If I said the world's got it better than us, no, there's people in my fellowship group, they'd say, hey, that's not true, man. If I said, what's the point of doing what's right before God, there's people in my fellowship group who would start giving me verses that would tell me, here's here's why we do what God's commanded us to do. See I can't say that. I might think that in my own heart but I can't say that at church and that is what helps Asaph get out of his funk right there is picturing the the presence of God's people the generation of of God's children. Look at verse 16. It says, when I thought how to understand this, as I was working it through in my own mind, it didn't seem fair. It didn't seem right. It seemed all messed up. It was a wearisome task when I was thinking about it in my own head. But then I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. See, when I was trying to figure it out, Man, it it was hard for me to figure it out in my own mind, in my own heart, in my own thinking. But then when I went into God's presence, into his holy place, and I thought about singing those worship songs, and I thought about somebody preaching the word, I realized this doesn't preach. You can't preach this. The world's got it better than us. That doesn't preach. That's not the point of the sermon. It's hard. It's not worth it to live righteously. That's not what we say. See, I relate to this because I I sometimes think things and then I think, no, wouldn't preach that on a Sunday morning. That doesn't preach. That's a thought I need to correct. That's a thought I need to get out of my head. See, everybody, if we all isolate ourselves and get into our own temptations and our own thoughts, we can get pretty messed up in our thinking. But when we come together and share our thoughts with one another, see, our thoughts get redirected back towards the things of the Lord. So point number three here, we need help because righteousness is hard. We need help because righteousness is hard. I mean, the, the truth is that there are things about the world that people desire so much, they leave churches like this. That It is hard to be a Christian in America right now. It is so hard to be a Christian in America right now that people quit. They don't even turn in their two weeks notice sometimes. They just quit right on the stage stop coming to church. They don't even tell you, hey, I'm thinking about stopping coming to church. They just disappear, and you don't see them anymore. I mean, this is the parable of the sower. Write down Matthew 13 next to this, okay? Write down, the world does look good, and Living for God is hard. Those are the two reasons given why some people receive the word with joy and they start out running for God, but then it's the deceitfulness of riches, the things of this life, or it's the hard trials of living for Christ that that either choke or it's that rocky soil that kind of just takes the life right out of them. So these struggles are real that Asaph is talking about. The world does look good. The Christian life is hard. But that's not what we preach here on Sunday mornings. That's not what the Bible teaches us is true. That's not what we share in our fellowship groups to build one another up and to encourage one another in the Lord. And when I put myself in the context of God's people here at this church, I start to get my thinking back on the right track. That's why we need each other. Because we can all get jaded and we can all have a hard time and it can be hard for me to live righteous and because I don't want to admit to the other people at church how hard it is some days to do what is right that I just start to think well I guess other people can't relate to that and I guess I'm the only person who feels this way and now when I go to that church I feel disconnected because they're all over here thinking righteousness is good and I'm over here thinking righteousness is hard and so eventually I just don't even go there anymore. But see, actually, if you went to somebody here at this church and you said, man, it's hard for me to live righteous, you know what that brother or sister could do with you? They could say, hey, I I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. I don't wake up doing jumping jacks for Jesus every morning. You know what I'm saying? Right? I mean, Sunday morning, I'm excited. Monday morning, I'm exhausted. Right? Right? I mean, somebody said, man, that was a, that was a great sermon on Sunday. I, w- I wonder what everybody's going to go do on Monday. Because that, uh, 24 hours can sometimes feel like a whole world away. See? No, I mean, it is hard to deny yourself, to take up your cross daily and follow Jesus Christ. And if you don't come into the sanctuary, if you don't think about the generation of God's children and saying that, like when you're thinking thoughts, it's good to picture one of your brothers or sisters in Christ and to picture if I said this to them, could I, could I say that? Or would I be betraying them? Would I be untrue? Or would they be telling me, what do you, say? What do you mean? That's not what, what the Bible says. That's not what we believe God wants for us. Sometimes it might be good to get out of your own thoughts by thinking about saying what you're thinking to somebody else here at the church. And it might even be better to just take it out of the hypothetical conversation and to actually go have a real conversation with somebody about the struggles of your heart. I would really encourage you to do that. Because Asaph, he got pretty messed up in his thinking until, he says, he went into the sanctuary of God. Until he considered saying what he was thinking to some of the other Levites or perhaps the people of God as he led them in worship. If Ryan Pierce showed up here on a Sunday morning and said, hey guys, it was a lot better being out there in the world than it's going to be here this morning. Let's sing. You would be like, what is Ryan doing? That's not right. That's not okay doesn't fly here in the place of God where God's people gather to worship him. That's why we need to be in places like this on Tuesday nights. Every single chance that we get to be in a place like this, it's very helpful to reorient our thinking away from the temptations and trials of this life and back onto the things of the Lord. Because if you turn your page over, as we keep going through the psalm here, you'll see that now now I remembered why I don't want to be wicked. Now I remembered why it's worth it to repent of my sins and to obey God's commands. Because when we get to verse 18, truly, see now I'm getting back on track with the truth. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Oh, now I remember why I didn't want to be a wicked person. Because they get judged. That's why I don't want to be wicked. Oh yeah, now I remember that hell's a real place and I don't want to go there. See? Now we're getting the eternal perspective again. Now we're getting our minds off the things that are on earth and back onto the things of the Lord. Yeah, the wicked, they're not prospering. Yeah, it might seem like they're increasing in riches and they're always at ease. They're in one of those foolish cliff houses, I like to call them, that we've got here in California, right? We recently had an earthquake here in California. Anybody feel that earthquake that we had in the middle of the night? Wake anybody up. I just rolled over and went back to sleep. I'm a Californian. That kind of stuff happens, no big deal. The rest of the, the nation is freaked out about these earthquakes we've got. I mean, they, like they, you tell them, go to Texas, Kansas, Nebraska, tell them you're from California, and they're going to start looking at you like, oh boy, have you ever fallen through the cracks in the ground down into the middle of the earth, you know what I mean? Like, how do you get to work every day dodging all of those uh, earthquakes, you know? I mean, they just look at you like, oh, how have you survived, right? I mean, that's what they think. And that's what I, I picture. Yeah, maybe it looks like they're living it up. Maybe it looks like they're rich and they've got the cars and they've got the house. But the house is perched on one of those cliffs overlooking the ocean. And they're just one earthquake away from complete destruction at the bottom of the hill. Like, yeah, you can live in that house if you want. Hope you enjoy it because someday that house is going to go rumbling, tumbling down to the bottom. That's where they are. Oh, yeah. Uh, One way I always like to think about this when it says they're swept away. They're destroyed in a moment like a dream and then it's over. Like they're like phantoms, it says. No, when God comes to judge, it's like they're ghosts. It's like they're so not there. You wonder if they ever even really were there to begin with. That's what it's like when God's going to judge the wicked. I always think when I read this, um, because when I really started falling in love with this psalm was about the time when I was in high school and uh, the movie Titanic came out. Anybody know the movie Titanic? Oh, how I hated that movie. Number one, I wasn't allowed to see it. Number two, every single girl in my high school was in love with this guy, Leonardo DiCaprio. You know what I'm saying? I mean, they, it was just like, oh, it was disgusting, you know? It was just gross what they were saying about this guy, right? Oh, and they fell in love. They fell in love in a car on a boat. And I'm like, yeah, and then the guy died. (laughs) Like, doesn't that bother you about this? Like, what's so great about being in love if you're dead the next minute? And I always think, yeah, just picture your temptation. Just watch it sail out on the Titanic. Look how good it looks out there. Look at them just living it up on the Titanic, doing whatever they want, and they end up at the bottom of the ocean. See, that's that's what's going on. Yeah, we just got to remember that sin is still not okay. Get this down for point number four. God is still not okay with sin. If it seems like people are getting away with it, if it seems like sin is the cool thing to do right now in America and we're left out because we're not going the way that everybody else is going, the easy way and we're going the hard way, well just remember that God is still not okay with sin. That he is going to judge. And we have not yet seen what the judgment of God really looks like. Because we are living in a state of mercy right now. Where God is withholding his wrath and not giving us what we deserve. And that's what we're going to get into more on on Sunday. All we have ever known up to this point is really the mercy of the Lord. To withhold judgment. I mean we have not seen his wrath poured out uh, on our sin yet And we just got to remember that when God shows up to judge, we are not going to want to have anything to do with the wickedness of this world. We are going to be glad that we were rebuked every morning and stricken every day, trying to follow God's ways. And it's going to seem so worth it that we did not live in the wickedness of this world. We may not be on the right side of history, but we will be on the right side of eternity, my friends. And we will be glad for all the things that we lost out on, all the movies that we did not see in this life, we will be thankful for. And we will be excited. Um, and, And it's terrible to think about what is going to happen to people who do not respect and fear and obey God. They are going to meet the anger of the Lord in all of its might and they will never recover from the judgment of God. So we don't want anything to do with that. And now Asaph is kind of seeing himself for how wrong he's been in these thoughts, in these temptations before God. And look what he says in verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Now he's starting to look at himself and be like, how could I have been wanting the things of the world? How could I have been saying it's so hard to live for God? How could I have had such a messed up, like just living by my my natural fleshly instincts, like an animal almost. How could I have gotten into that mindset? What was I thinking is basically what he's saying. Man, I was so messed up in my thinking, but yet, verse 23 nevertheless, I am continually with you, and you hold my right hand man, I was over here not wanting to be near you, God, wanting the things of the world. I I was over here thinking it's so hard to live for God. And yet now when I come out of it, when I snap to it, when I realize how messed up my thoughts were, here you are still with me, holding my hand, still leading me down the right path. What an amazing God you are. You love me even when I'm not loving you from my heart. You're still loving me. And nevertheless, even though I was thinking this way like a beast, like a brute, like an ignoramus. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. And you're holding my hand. And you're still now guiding me. You're still speaking words of truth to me. You're guiding me with your counselor. And eventually your counsel is going to lead me down the path to your glorious presence. That's where I'm going. I'm not going to judgment. I'm going to glory. Even though some days I want to do the things that people are going to be judged for, that's not where I'm going. God's got my hand and he's leading me to glory. Praise the Lord. See, now we start to get to the really good part of the song. And now he says, wait a minute. Whom have I in heaven but you? What is my hope? of heaven but you. How am I going to get to heaven by knowing anyone but you? And so now he can even say what will preach that there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Now a guy who wanted the things of the world can say no actually I don't want those things. There is nothing I desire except for you Lord. And so here Asaph is coming around with some of the best descriptions, I think, of our relationship with God in all of the Bible. Like look at verse 26. This is, this is probably the main verse people pull out of Psalm 73, where he says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Anybody want to say amen after that? Now we're getting to the good stuff right here. Yeah, I do sometimes want the things of the world. Sometimes the things of God seem very hard. But when I fail, God is my strength. See? That's why I put no confidence in the flesh. That's why I don't think I'm really bringing anything to this relationship that I've got with God. He's the one that is bringing the strength to my heart. See? And I don't know why, you can see next to the word strength there, there's a number two in our ESV translation, a little uh, footnote there. And it says in the Hebrew that the word that's translated strength is also translated what? What does it say there? Does anybody see your footnote? Rock. Rock. It says, God is the rock of my heart. Now that sounds kind of like a, a funny phrase a little bit to say that God is the rock of my heart which is why I guess in the in the English they put strength of my heart but every other place pretty much that I looked up that this word is used in the Psalms in the Hebrew it's translated rock. So yeah my flesh my heart may fail. I might be a little wishy-washy but God is the rock of my heart he's the one that keeps me on the right track it's kind of like when you're in a relationship and you know somebody and then they get to meet your spouse and you say something like this is my better half anybody ever say something like that before when you're me you say it all the time because it's pretty 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 true pretty clear to everybody pretty quick right Yeah, this is my better half. Or sometimes when somebody in a relationship is going through a really tough time, maybe they've been sick, maybe they've lost a job, they're just really going through it. Sometimes they'll say about their spouse, they'll be like, yeah, they were my rock through this tough time. You ever hear somebody say that? That's what this verse is right here. Yeah, I went through a tough time. I kind of lost focus. I kind of of got a little wishy-washy. In fact, I failed to really live up to that God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. My heart wasn't very pure, and I wasn't really seeking out the goodness of the Lord. But God is the rock of my heart. God's the one who kept me on the right track. God's the one who brings me back, and he's the one who supports me and helps me through. Even when I'm not there, here's God bringing me strength. What an amazing image that God is the rock of your heart as a Christian person. Especially when we think about regeneration as it's communicated to us in the new covenant. That God gives us a new heart and he puts his spirit within us. And the spirit causes us to walk in God's ways. The spirit teaches us, helps us, comes alongside of us, supports us. Wow! Wow! Yeah, if it were up to me, I'd probably wander into this temptation. And I'd probably get discouraged by this trial. But God, the rock of my heart, He's the one that keeps me going. Go to Psalm 18, verse 30. And let's look at some of the other Psalms that have used this same word where it's translated, rock. And let's start to get a picture now. Now that we get to the positive part of the psalm. Now that Asaph's coming around and he's really bringing it. What does he mean that God is the rock of his heart? Well look at this. Psalm 18 verse 31. Maybe you remember this when we read it. For who is God but the Lord and who is a rock except our God? Okay, well, that's, that's our word right there, that God is a rock. There's no other source of stability, security, strength that we can always count on. We cannot always count on ourselves. We can only count on the Lord. And then, look, when I know that God is my rock... Look at this equipping. Look at this strengthening that happens. Verse 32. The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. That would be a good verse for everybody to circle, underline, write down in your notes right there. Here's what it means to have God as your rock. He equips you with strength and allows you to walk in a way that is blameless. See, it's so hard for me to try to do what is right. But when God is my strength, then I'm empowered by his grace, by his spirit to obey him. See, now I feel like I can do it. Now I feel equipped because it's not me doing it, but it's him who's powerfully working within me, causing me both to want to do what is right and to be able to do it for his good pleasure. So the way that I can work out my salvation, Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. How? For it is God who is at work in you, Philippians 2.13. So here we see that the rock, look what it does. Look at the description, verse 33. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and he set me secure on the heights. It's like I'm one of those animals jumping up a hill now. I don't even need to find where the handholds are. I'm not hanging off the side of the cliff anymore. I'm jumping up the hill like a, like a deer here. He trains my hands for war. I like the sound of this. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. I mean, has anybody here tried to really shoot a real bow and arrow? That's not easy to do for us city slickers. Here now, we're strong enough to bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand supported me. Your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. How did it start? But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Well, why didn't you slip, Asaph? Why didn't you go back into wanting the things of the world? Why didn't you say Christianity is too hard and give up? Because God is the rock of your heart. That's why you stuck with it. Because he made it seem like it was a wide way. Something that seems so hard for you to do now. He made it seem like it was a wide place for you to walk on. And he gave you sure footing. And he supported you and he carried you and he equipped you. that's what it does when God's our rock. Rock, go to Psalm 61. We've read a lot about God being our rock recently in the Psalm of the day, if you've been reading through it with us every day. Here in Psalm 61, I love the picture that David gives here in Psalm 61 verse 1. He says, hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is what? What does he say there? When my heart is what? This is not. This is one of those mornings where he's not exactly feeling like it's time to read the word and pray. You ever have one of those mornings? Anybody here? Anybody ever wake up and feel like I'm not really feeling like uh, getting in God's word this morning, praying this morning? No, he's crying out to God, and he feels like he's at the ends of the earth, and he feels like his heart doesn't have a lot of strength today. His heart's not really in it today. His heart's feeling faint, and he says, "Lead me to the rock." that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. I am so dependent on God being my rock that I can't even get to stand on the rock unless he leads me to the rock. You see what I mean? Not only is he saying, God, I need you to be my rock this morning, but I actually need you to lead me to the rock because I can't even get there myself. I'm so dependent on you. I'm dependent on you to be dependent on you. That's what he's saying. Like, I won't even choose to depend on you today. I'll just give up. I won't even choose to come to your strength unless you lead me into your strength. That's the only way I'm even going to come to you for strength. That's how much he's broken it down here. Like, it's not like, oh, I depend on God to give me strength. No, I'm dependent on God to make me dependent for his strength. That's what he's saying. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. I mean, he's saying in our relationship, when it comes to us and God, God is the rock of our relationship. Let's get that down for point number five here. In this relationship, let's just make it clear who's the rock. Who's the better half? Who's the one that's bringing everything to the table in this relationship? In this relationship, God is my rock. That's what we need to make very clear. I'm not bringing a lot to this relationship that I've got with the almighty, all-knowing, all-good God what am I bringing to this? I'm bringing basically nothing to this, right? I'm bringing uh, the sin that makes his forgiveness and grace amazing. I'm bringing the, the nothing that shows it's his power working through me. Look at Psalm 62. Look what it says here again, uh, this theme of God being our rock. It says it a couple of times here in verse 2. And then it's repeated in verse 6. It says, let's just read 62, 5, 6, and 7. It says, for God alone, oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock in my salvation. There's only one rock of my heart. And it's the Lord, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests everything. My salvation, my glory, my mighty rock my refuge is God. I mean, are you, are you getting the point here? Are we, are we getting a sense of strength? Now, I don't know if rocks are very exciting to you, all right? Uh, I, I don't know if we even have a good picture of what we mean by rocks here, okay? Uh, I know we had a women's event where we preached on this truth that we can trust in the Lord our God because he is an everlasting rock from Isaiah 26 verse 4. And I know that people got to take home with them a rock to put somewhere to remind them of that. But when when David is writing some of these psalms and now Asaph picking up on some of this uh, imagery. In fact look at Psalm 63 where the heading there says a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. See, one of the things that that was exciting for me was one day when I got to go to the land of Israel, and I got to go to the wilderness of Judah, and it's just a hot place, and there's a whole lot of nothing, and you would pity the fool, anybody who had to come out and wander around here and live out here, and then there's this place that we're going to go on our trip. We're hoping to have a trip um, June 23rd to uh, July 2nd of 2017. Here at Compass Bible Church, we're hoping to go to the promised land. And we're going to go to this place called En Gedi. And En Gedi is like an oasis in the wilderness of Judah. And, when you, and I've been there. Some, I went there with uh, some people that are here tonight. When we went, got to go to Israel together. And you, all of a sudden, you go kind of down into the rock. See, it's just like this dry desert but you go down underneath and now you're like in this canyon and there's these rocks all around you and there's this flowing stream all the way down and all of a sudden things are green and you get to the end and there's this waterfall in the middle of the desert and all of a sudden this rock all around you up on the top in the desert you felt very exposed, very vulnerable, very dry like anybody could find you, anybody could come and get you. But now down in Angeti where there's this where there's this water in the middle of the desert, where there's this rock kind of fortress all around you, now you feel secure. Now you feel like bring the enemies on. Now you feel like I could run against a troop. I could leap over a wall. I could fight my enemy because now I'm in a strong place. That's what it means by rock. That's the picture. Like, man, it was so hard doing it on my own. I was so dry and so weary. And then I got close to the Lord and I got a place, a fortress, a mighty place, a place of security and strength and now I felt like I got a few drinks of water, I got some life back in me, put me in coach I can do something. That's what it feels like here. When he's talking about the rock, go to go to uh 71, Psalm 71. Just a couple of days ago, we read this Psalm 71 where he's asking God here, whoever the psalmist is, it doesn't tell us here in Psalm 71, But look what he's saying. He's coming to God and he's saying, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Now, Just remember that, I don't know who wrote that psalm, but we have an idea of King David, okay? King David was a mighty man of war. King David was the guy, they would say that Saul had killed thousands and David had killed his what? Does anybody know? His tens of thousands. When no one else was willing to fight the giant, David did when he was just a youth and decapitated him in front of both armies, I mean, this was a man's man. This was a guy who ended up being the king, who ended up living in a palace, and yet he refers to himself as poor and needy. And nobody's qualification was somebody like Asaph, the minister of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, or David, the king of God's people. These guys weren't in anybody's category of poor or needy but they were in their hearts before the Lord. Rescue me, deliver me, save me. Like these guys are just needy people is what it feels like when you're reading these Psalms. Like when we got to Psalm 62, 63, 64, 65, 66, I started to get a sense from some people like David, we've had it with the enemies. We get it. They're after you. All right, man, let's move on. Let's just be honest. Some of us were thinking that in our hearts, right? It's because we don't have enemies that are maybe trying to kill us on a daily basis here. That doesn't feel like people are tracking us down to fight us, to end us. Like David maybe felt both before he was king and after he was king as he fought in many wars. But he's, look at the language here. Deliver me, rescue me, listen to me, incline your ear to me, save me. I need you to come and be my rock. I'm regularly declaring my dependence on you, God. That's what we need in our relationship with the Lord. We need to come and bring our need so that he can show us that he is our strength. We need to be ready to say to things to God regularly like, God, my flesh and my heart, they fail you, but I know that you are the rock of my heart. You are my portion, my life forever. Go back to Psalm 73. We're almost there now getting back to Psalm 71. And then I feel like Asaph gives us a a, a more full statement. He started us with truly God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. But now here at the end he gives us the conclusion which gets us beyond that head knowledge of knowing God is good down to now the experience of our hearts. And he says for behold those who are far from you, the people who want the things of this world, the wicked, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. And just remember our sermon on Hosea where God's saying to his people, they're not going to be his people. They're not going to get his mercy because they've been unfaithful to him, because they've played the whore as we learned on on Sunday. Well, God's going to put an end to them. But, see now it's a different kind of but. No, now I'm not going to be one of those people. But, for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Yeah, we can say God is good to, the, to the, those who are pure in heart, but the truth is anybody who's got a heart that wants something besides God, anybody who's going far, they're going in the opposite direction of God, they're going to get judged. But the people over here, me, I can say it's good for me to be near God. See, now he's not saying God is good to Israel, to the pure in heart out there somewhere. Now what he's saying is God is my good. That's what he's saying. I will seek the Lord for my goodness. The New King James Version translates verse 28, but it is good for me to draw near God. New American Standard Version says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. People who are far, well, they're, not, they're going to end up destroyed. They're going to end up at an end. But where I want to be, and he's using this spatial analogy here, is I want to be near. I want to be close. I want to be intimate. That's what he's saying. This idea of being near God, that language came from the Levitical priests because they would go into the holy place and then into the holy of holies. They would move literally as they moved through the temple from the courts then into the temple and then the high priest even going into the holy of holies. It was like we were getting near to the presence of God. And so now what's amazing is the guy who stands before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is admitting to everyone that he's a normal person just like everybody else who has his temptations and has his trials. But all of us, no matter who we are, whether we're the priest or not, whether the Levite or not, we can all now be near to the Lord. That can be our good. You can make the Lord your refuge. In fact, it's so good to have God as the rock of your heart. It's so good to be near God, to be safe and secure in the Lord, that I'm going to tell everybody of your works and what you've done to bring me near to you. That's what he's saying. Anybody can go right up to the holy presence of God. And that is good, is what he's saying. See, it's not whether you can tell me God is good or not. It's whether you can tell me that now, here tonight, as you live moment by moment, that God is your good. Let's get this down for point number six. Heart knowledge of God is enough for me. Head knowledge, we started with, that's not enough. But a heart knowledge, a real relationship, an interaction, an intimate knowing here. And nearness That brings us the thought of being close, even to the point, sometimes this word nearness gets to where like we're touching. That's the idea here. That nearness, that's that's enough for me. I don't need all the world has, and I'll suffer through whatever it means to be near God. That's where I believe is going to be a good place to be, is in the presence of my God. And so I'm For me, hey, the world can do whatever it wants. Everybody else, you guys decide what you're going to do. For me, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go be near God. That's what I'm going to do. That's where I've decided I want to live my life. And this idea of being near God has been used throughout the Psalms as well. Go back to Psalm 27. Look back at Psalm 27. And here's the idea. Uh, Psalm 27, uh, verse 8. Here's a beautiful verse um, that shows a relationship with God. Where it's like God saying something to us and we're saying something back. It says, you have said, seek my face. I've I've heard what you want me to do. You want me to seek you. You want me to get close to you, near to you. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. And then you can jump down to verse 13 and 14 of Psalm 27. I believe or another way you could say it is, I would have lost heart unless I believed. I would have given up. I would have been weak. My heart would have failed unless I believed that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So you see throughout the Psalms a passion, a desire of a person's heart That today, what I want to do is I want to move near God. I want to be close to God. I have this longing for God. Go back to Psalm 42. There's some great statements of longing for God. Wanting some kind of personal experience of Him. Where it says uh, here, comparing it to an animal, as a deer pants for flowing streams, as this deer that's jumping up the cliff and running through the desert, That deer's going to get thirsty. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. See, I understand where my strength to, to run like the deer, to jump up that cliff, I understand where it comes from. It comes from you. So my soul thirsts for you, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? See, now my heart's going full circle, where it went from hard to get into the Word and hard to pray, and now it's like, when can I spend more time praying and reading the Word? Yeah, it's nice to be here at church with the rest of you people, but I can't wait to get back to the secret place. I want to be with the Lord. I want to spend time with Him, get near Him. Go to Psalm 63. We already referred to it a little bit. But let's read it here where he uses the desert as the analogy here in Psalm 63, starting in verse 1. O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water tired of thinking that the world's going to satisfy my thirst with their broken cisterns no I'm coming to you Lord so that's why I stop looking at worldly things and I come into the sanctuary and I want to see your power and your glory because your love is better than life my lips shall praise you starts to turn around go to Psalm 84 we'll get we'll get here in a few more days Psalm 84 where our song better is one day comes from It says Psalm 84 verse 1, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Oh, I can't wait to get back to that church where we're going to worship. I can't wait to get to the next Psalm of the day. I just love spending time with God. I want to be near Him. I want to be close to Him. James 4.8 is a verse that you could write down. James 4.8. In fact, let's turn there to end our uh, time here together tonight. Everybody, let's get to the New Testament real quick here. And here's a promise in Scripture as James warns us. And really, uh, James 4 is very similar to Hosea chapter 1. It's very similar to Psalm 73. It's saying, watch out for spiritual adultery. We know what adultery is when a spirit, when a married person and has sex with someone who's not their partner not their spouse but Jesus he breaks adultery down to no if you even look at someone with lustful intent even that in your heart is the sin of adultery well we're here tonight and we're talking about spiritual adultery is what we're doing And yeah, there's people, they just don't even worship God. They don't love God with all their heart, with any of their heart. They just go after other things. They worship those things. They ascribe worth and honor and glory to those things. There's people who are just full-on idolaters and spiritual adulterers. But even if you look at the world with lustful intent, you might be a spiritual adulterer in your heart. And that's what James is saying. James just says it. He says, you adulterers and adulteresses, right? That's what he says, and here at the beginning of... uh... Uh, chapter 4 verse 4 he says you adulterous people do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God and then just a few verses later in verse 8 now that was the wrong perspective to want the things of the world well then we came to the sanctuary then we got turned around now we're looking at our rock now we're seeking out to be near God and it says draw near to God and he will draw near to you It doesn't say draw near to God and you might possibly feel better in a couple of days. Draw near to God and and, uh, hopefully he'll hear you. Hopefully he'll uh, come around. Maybe it'll get better. No, it's a promise, my friends. When you draw near to God, what does it say he's going to do with you? He's going to draw near. When you seek God with all of your heart, you will, what does the Bible say? You find him. Yeah, God knows if we're committing spiritual adultery in our hearts. And he knows if we're seeking after him, if we're drawing near to him, if we're giving our whole heart to him. And when he knows that we are drawing near to him, he shows up. He will draw near to you. So cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You people who want God. And the world, you people like Asaph, you people like Bobby Blakey, all you people who know you should love God. You know he's good and that's where goodness is, but you're sometimes tempted to wander off into the things of the world. Well, hey, stop being double-minded. Draw near to the Lord and I promise you this, he will draw near to you. So that, my friends, is my favorite psalm and I hope it encourages you here this evening. Let me pray. God, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you, God, for the truth that we ended up on tonight, that you are the rock of our hearts. That, God, we admit openly, freely, honestly, here together, we admit that our flesh and our heart, they do fail. We are tempted by the things in this world. We are tried by the challenges of righteousness and obedience on a daily basis, and yet, God, we know that you give us a strength That you give us a desire to be near you. And God, I pray that you would be our rock. That we would want to know you more, not just in our heads, but in our hearts, God. To be seeking after you. To be drawing near to you. God, help this to go from an analogy of of closeness, of intimacy, of moving from a place of faraway distance and getting now nearer and nearer. God, help that to go from an idea we can understand to a reality that we have in our lives. Where we are near to you and we can say that right here, being near to God, that is my good. That's what I'm seeking after. That's what I want. God, make us people who love you With a pure heart. And please be good to us as we know you have promised to be God. We thank you so much for the strength that you give to us. That you are the rock of our heart.